page 32 and lesson 8 of our Why You Can Trust the Bible series. We will finish that series today with the eighth and final lesson. But I'll run through the announcements quickly. This series ends today, so next Sunday, and for the following four Sundays, all four Sundays in June, during this hour, I will not be in here. I will be in another room. I'll be in adult classroom two, which is out those back, that back door and across the hall, with any of you who will be participating in our newcomers orientation. And I encourage anybody who's not taken our newcomers orientation to do that, 11-15 next week and all four Sundays in June. And then simultaneous with that, in our resource center, we'll have our new members class. Those of you that have joined since the last new members class, you will get a direct invitation because that's a finite list. We know who you are. I don't know who all the newcomers are, so we just invite you with a general invitation like I'm giving you now and have been for the last few weeks. And next week, if you're a newcomer, then be in adult classroom two, not in here next week. Uh, for the newcomer's orientation, and I'll lead that for those four Sundays. Then for those of you that are in here, for those four Sundays, we will have uh, different uh, brothers uh, presenting uh, God's Word. Next week, we're going to have uh, a missionary, Jeremy Roy, and uh, he is going to the Dominican Republic, and he's going to be presenting in here during the 11 o'clock hour uh, next week. And then on the 14th, the 14th is Paul McKenzie is going to teach on the 14th for us. And then on the 21st, uh, the teacher is TBA, that is to be announced. And on the 28th, the last Sunday of the month, Brother Rich Carrico is going to be leading. So those uh, three of the four weeks uh, are filled and uh, still got some feelers out for that, uh, that third week in, in June. And then we will start a new series for the summer in July And then in the fall, we'll have an outreach series during this, the Discovering God Hour, okay? So that's the newcomers and new members. The newcomers brunch. We try to mix you up as much as we can with the names of all of these things. What's the difference between newcomers and new members? And then in addition to the newcomers orientation, we've got a newcomers brunch. Well, for newcomers that have never been to brunch at our house, we do this periodically throughout the year. And consider yourself a newcomer, even if you've been here for a few years, and you've never been to the brunch because you couldn't make it at the prior brunches, perhaps. So if you've never been to the brunch, we would love to have you come to our house on Saturday, June the 27th, Saturday the 27th at 10 a.m. And there are invitations at the information center desk for that. Now, I said there were invitations last week, and then I was told they weren't there. And so I'm saying they're there this week, and I'm hoping they are. But either way, you can give your name, they will put your name down, and we do want to know who's coming so that we know how much food to make, and it also on those invitations has the address to our house uh, for that. So check in uh, for that, register for that uh, today if you if you could. We have a, a couple of uh, fundraisers going on for our teen ministry trip that's going to happen in the middle of July. Our teens are going to go to Florida to help out our former associate pastor, Matt uh, Owen, and his church at Orange Park Bible Church just outside of Jacksonville with some outreach. They're also going to have some fun while they're there on that trip. But it's a costly trip. Everything included, lodging and food, transportation, and all of that is $450 per teen. We're trying to reduce that uh, for the average teen 
by just taking direct donations. Today's the last day for that. If you've been intending to give a donation for it, today's the day to do it. Drop it off at the information center before you leave. And then also, uh, two weeks from tonight, Sunday, June the 14th, 6 o'clock in this room, our teens are going to present a musical presentation. And there's a suggested donation of $10 for that. But if you don't have the $10, of course, please come, whatever you can give. And if you're able to give more than $10, that will certainly be accepted as well. But uh, that will be two weeks from tonight, 6 o'clock in this room, and you'll be blessed by the presentation that the teenagers are, are going to make. Now, I was asked to point out that the flyers for that, that have been out on the information desk, say Saturday, June the 14th. And Saturday is June the 13th. So those are being corrected, and they're going to have new ones out there. But please note, it is a Sunday at 6 o'clock, two weeks from tonight, for that uh, musical presentation by our teenagers. At the end of that service, we're going to have a cake reception for Zach and Lena and their family, Zach and Lena Hamilton, because they're going to be relocating. In fact, Zach is starting a new job this week in Columbus, but they're going to be back on the on the 14th to worship with us, and then that night we're going to have a farewell um, cake reception for them. So please come for all of those reasons on that night two weeks from tonight, okay? Last thing is sign up for the Trenton Summer Festival. That's the end of this month. We need people to man our booth. That's going to be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Two-hour slots. So if you can be at one or more of those two-hour slots, then let the folks at the Information Center know about that. All right, let me quickly review, and we'll get into our last lesson today. In our Why You Can Trust the Bible series, we have looked at the necessity of revelation. It's necessary for God to reveal, that is, make known, information about himself, about us, about his world, about his purposes in order for us to know those things. Otherwise, we are left in the dark. So the necessity of revelation. But then we saw the necessity of inscripturating that revelation, of having it committed to writing so that it can be preserved. And today we're going to see how that preservation has happened. And then we begin to hone in, beginning with lesson three, on the uniqueness of the Bible, the distinctive features of the Bible that that point to its divine origin couple of lessons on predictive prophecies in the Bible that uh, point to the uniqueness of the Bible. Lesson five, we looked at the relationship between science and what the the Bible teaches about the origins of of humanity and of the universe. Lesson six, we looked at how archaeology confirms the people and places that are mentioned in the Bible. And then last week, we looked at principles of interpretation. All of this does us no good if we don't take the Bible, read it, and then use as directed, interpret the Bible uh, uh, appropriately. And now today, we're going to end top of page 32, you see, with the transmission and the preservation of, of the Bible. The books of the Bible are in number 66. 39 of those are in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, and then... The New Testament has the remaining 27. In the Old Testament, those 39 books were written over a period of about a thousand years. Genesis was written in the mid-15th century B.C. and then Malachi in 450 B.C. So about a thousand years. Now, I just uh, would add that the book of Job possibly was written before Moses, before Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And so the uh, and so the Old Testament is not necessarily completely in chronological order, although although mostly so. And the Book of Job is a poetic book. Uh, it is it is poetic history about 
the life of, of Job, one named Job. But we don't know exactly when it was written, and some of the features of that book indicate it may have been written as early as 2000 B.C., but before, uh, before the book of Genesis, possibly. Part of the reason I mention that is because in the book of Job, Job chapter 40 uh, is made mention of beasts that describe very close, closely dinosaurs. And I'll be mentioning that in our Genesis series that we're doing in our first hour. And that's a question that a lot of people have and a lot of skeptics have about the Bible. Because they say, you know, dinosaurs aren't mentioned in the Bible. We've got all these fossils from dinosaurs. So the Bible's clearly not accurate history. But I'm convinced that dinosaurs are actually mentioned in the Bible. And dinosaurs uh, went onto the ark with Noah. And that dinosaurs became extinct after that, as we know. But we'll talk about that later in our in our Genesis series, but Job chapter forty, if you're interested in reading about reading about that, so the Old Testament is comprised of thirty nine books written over a period of at least a thousand years, and the Old Testament books have been copied for us by professionals. In subsequent, in the next few pages, we have a, a section that talks about the painstaking work that the professional scribes did in copying manuscripts of the. Old, Old Testament. But for now, uh, just know that at the end of every Old Testament book, I have a Hebrew Old Testament, so an Old Testament that's written in Hebrew. And at the end of each of those, those uh, Old Testament books, there's a, a section at the end with numbers in Hebrew, Hebrew numbers. And what those are are counters. And what the scribe would do was count the number of words and letters in the book in order to make sure that they got it all. So this was a cross-check for them. So it was an amazingly accurate system, and that accuracy was proven by the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, within the last last century, and we'll see that in just a bit as well. Now, notice that the last book of the Old Testament, you see under number two there, written over a period of about a 1,000 years, Genesis and then Malachi 450 B.C., Well, you don't start the New Testament until you get to A.D., right? So B.C. is before Christ. And uh, A.D. is not after death. That's what sometimes people say. You got before Christ, you got after death. Well, then you got a gap of about 33 years that are unaccounted for, if that's the case. A.D. is Latin for Anno Domini, which means the year of our Lord. And so that would be year zero. And that's when our calendar then starts And so we are in year 2015, after the year of our Lord, beginning with the birth of Christ. And so the New Testament, of course, begins with the birth of Christ. Now, I bring that up because you've got the last book of the Old Testament written 450 years before the birth of Christ. That means you've got 400 years between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament. 400 years in which no additional books of the Bible were written and added to what we call the canon of Scripture. And that word canon, the word canon means a standard. And there were no books written during that 400-year period that met the standard of canonicity. Now, how do we know that? And I just want to spend a few minutes on that. How do we know that during this 400 years that there weren't some other books that were supposed to be in there? Because, of course, other books were written during that 400 years. And not only were other books written, but the Roman Catholic Bible 
actually has seven books written during that period that are part of the Roman Catholic Bible. So instead of a total of 66, or instead of 39 in your Old Testament, there are 46 books in the Roman Catholic Old Testament, a total of 73 rather than 66 books in the Roman Catholic Bible. Now, none of the doctrines, by the way, uh, about which there is great disagreement with Roman Catholicism. If you were here for our What's the Difference series at the end of last year, then we went through all of that. Uh, none of that is is found in those seven books. So uh, the other 66 books are the same as the 66 we have. Uh, they've just been grossly misinterpreted and uh, have had tradition added as an equal authority to Scripture and we covered all that in that What's the Difference series. I can't do that Do that now. But Roman Catholicism has these extra seven books. The seven books include, uh, have you perhaps you've heard of some of these, the Book of Wisdom, the Book of Tobit, First and Second Maccabees. So who, what is that? Why do they have seven extra books, and why do we say they're extra and they're not supposed to be in there? Well... These books were written during that 400-year period, and they provide very, often very helpful historical information. So it's not that they're useless, but I'm going to demonstrate that they're not canonical in just a moment. For example, Maccabees, first and second Maccabees, is named after a family, the Maccabees family. So Jacob Maccabeus and his sons went to war against the Roman authorities in Palestine. Now, why did they go to war? Because the Romans had taken over the, the city of Jerusalem. And they had not only taken over the city of Jerusalem, but in an act of absolute blasphemy on the day December 25th, I'm not making that up, December 25th of 167 B.C., uh, a pig was offered on the altar in the temple in Jerusalem in defiance of Old Testament laws and desecrating the the temple. And, of course, the Jews chafed under this. And the Maccabees family, Jacob Maccabeus and his sons, led a revolt. And that revolt was ultimately successful. In fact, on December 25th, 164 B.C., three years to the day that the temple had been desecrated, it was reconsecrated to the God of Israel in a great celebration. That celebration went on for eight days. And that celebration we know today as Hanukkah. So, I don't know if you all know that history. If nothing else, you know that Adam Sandler, is that his name? You know, talks about eight crazy nights that the Jews have in their celebration. So that's the eight crazy nights of Hanukkah. um, And that's that's where it came from. Well, that's helpful historical information. That... The Maccabees went to war, and all of that is related to things that you will find then in your New Testament. Because you will find the Festival of Lights, for example, mentioned in your New Testament. But that is stuff that happened in this intervening period. And so it's helpful for historical information, but why do we say it's not canonical? Uh, Here's why. Because Jesus who started, of course, the New Testament. The New Testament starts with the birth of of Christ. And then as Jesus taught, Jesus made regular reference to God's word, the first part of the Bible, the Old Testament. 
And by the time Jesus has come on the scene, all of these seven books and more are available to him. He has what is called the Apocrypha. That's what those seven books that the Roman Catholic Bible has that our Bible does not have. That's called the Apocrypha. But Jesus had the Apocrypha available to him. It existed at the time Jesus walked the earth and taught. Jesus quotes the Bible extensively. And yet, lo and behold, he never quotes the Apocrypha. When Jesus says, it is written, which is a reference to the inscripturated revelation of God, it is written. He never says it is written and then quotes something from the Apocrypha. So that's one. But also, Jesus actually makes some references during his teaching to the composition of the Old Testament. Now, several weeks ago, I think I gave you, I think I gave you this, so forgive me for the repetition, but I'm sure you don't remember it anyhow. Uh, so let me give you those references that Jesus makes. Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, verses 45 to 47. Luke 24, 45 to 47. Jesus is at the end of his earthly ministry. Luke 24, chapter 24 of Luke is the last chapter in Luke. So everything that Jesus has come to accomplish, he has done. Accomplish, he has done. He's died on the cross. He has risen. He's given, giving final instructions to his first followers, the apostles, and then he's going to ascend back to the Father. But before doing that, Jesus says, everything that is written about me must be fulfilled. And then he says, everything that is written about me must, about me in three places must be fulfilled. And then he gives those three places. He says, in the law, the prophets, and the writings, the law and the prophets and the writings, law, prophets and writings, everything written about me in those three categories. Well, what are those? What are those three categories? Here's what they are. Remember, I mentioned I have this uh, Hebrew Bible, it's Hebrew Old Testament. And on the on the front cover of that, just like if you have a Bible on the cover, it might say Holy Bible. Well, on the front of this, it has three Hebrew words. And those three Hebrew words are Torah and Nabi'im, and Ketubim. And those three words are the law, and the prophets, and the writings. Law, prophets, and writings. Now, sometimes that writings section is referred to as the Psalms. Sometimes you'll see it as the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. And that's because the book of Psalms is the first and largest book in that third category called the the writings. So the Hebrew Old Testament that the Jews used and that Jesus used when he walked the earth and from which he quoted was divided into these three categories, these three sections, law section, the prophets, and then the writings. And those three sections comprised were comprised of 39 books. The exact 39 books that you have in your Old Testament, not 46. And those three sections did not include the seven books of the Apocrypha. So that's the, that's another reason. Jesus never quotes from the Apocrypha, though he has access to it. And Jesus excludes it when he says everything that is written about me must be fulfilled, written about me in the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. So that's one. But then Jesus makes another reference to the parameters of the Old Testament. This one is in Luke 11.51. Luke 11.51. Luke 11.51. And in Luke 11.51, Jesus is doing what he found himself doing often in his earthly ministry. And that was 
castigating his detractors, particularly the religious leaders, the Pharisees. The Pharisees opposed Jesus at every turn, as you know, as you read through the Gospels. And in Luke 11, Jesus is castigating them, and he is saying, you are, you are whitewashed tombs, and you're a brood of vipers. And, you know, read that. Read Matthew 23, where Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, and then just goes at it. And you will agree with something that I've said for years, and that is Jesus did not take how to win friends and influence people. Jesus was not, Jesus was interested in more steak than sizzle, okay? More substance than style. And, and I think that's a good, I think that's a good model to follow. Be more interested in substance than style, in truth than in placating. Tell people as lovingly as you can the truth. But there are times where people must understand the truth in very direct ways. And Jesus did that. And one of those occasions is in Luke chapter 11 and verse 51. And he says to them, you religious leaders, you Pharisees, you are guilty of the blood of all of the prophets. Well, there's an indictment. You're guilty of the murder of all the prophets. And of course, Jesus knows they're going to murder him. But he says... You're guilty of the blood of all the prophets, which is why, by the way, you hate me and you're going to murder me. You're guilty of the blood of all of the prophets from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. That's what he says. Luke eleven fifty one. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah. Now, the blood of Abel, that have, that's the first murder in human history. First murder, therefore, in the Bible. In Genesis chapter 4. And you're guilty of the first murder. Going back to the very first one in the book of Genesis. But you're also guilty of the murder of one named Zechariah. Now, where did that happen? And if it happened in the book of Malachi, well, then you'd go, oh, look at that. Genesis and Malachi. First one and last one. But it didn't. That's recorded in the book of Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles. The blood of Zechariah. Second Chronicles. So how does that help us set the parameters of the Old Testament? Here's how. Although... The Jewish Old Testament, Hebrew Old Testament, has these three categories of law and prophets and writings that are comprised of the same 39 books we have. They are in slightly different order. They start with the law books. They start with the same one we do, Genesis. But they don't end with Malachi. The last book in the Jewish arrangement is actually Second Chronicles. Now, it's the same 39 books, but they're arranged differently, and they end with Second Chronicles. And that's the Bible Jesus had. Now, notice, he has, those, he has access to these other seven books. But he says, in effect, you're guilty of the blood of all of the prophets from the beginning, Genesis, to the end, Second Chronicles. So the end is not after Tobit or Wisdom or Second Maccabees. The end is at the end of the 39 books, not the, not the 46 books. And then when you come to your New Testament, you've got the 27 books, and these books were not copied by professional scribes like the Old Testament was. These were laymen copying these. But the good news for us is we've got a bunch of New Testament manuscripts, and the accuracy of those New Testament manuscript copies 
has been verified by just comparing them to one another, and we'll see a chart of that in the uh, succeeding pages. So those are the books of the Bible, and then, then the languages of the Bible. The Old Testament, written in Hebrew, a little bit of Aramaic, and then the New Testament in Greek. Old Testament Hebrew. Hebrew developed from the Canaanite language spoken in Palestine from 2000 B.C. onward. 99% of the Old Testament is in Hebrew, and why? Because it was the language spoken by by Israel. Now, if you got one of these Hebrew Bibles, uh, here's what you would see. You open up a Hebrew Bible and you see these large letters, and all of the large letters are consonants. There are no vowels. So think about that for a minute. So think about your name um, with no vowel. Like we don't have any words that don't have vowels. Every word, it's like a rule. Every word's got to have a vowel. And here's the reason, because vowels help you pronounce. They help you vocalize. That's why it's called a vowel. So, but in, but in Hebrew, they, they didn't have vowels. They just had the consonants. So if you think about your name, you know, Paul would be P.L. And if I always saw, if I saw P.L. in certain contexts, like it's referring to a person, then I could, in context, know what it's, what it's talking about. And if it's taught to me both not only in writing but verbally, the stories are told to me, then I know when I see those symbols how that's to be pronounced. And that's what they did. So they could pronounce it even without having, having written the, the vowels because they know, when they saw those symbols, they had been taught how that, what that represented. But it's strange, isn't it? And it gets more strange because if you know the story of Old Testament Israel, you know that uh, there was a captivity both of Israel and of Judah. I won't bore you with that, but... But one of those captivities was in Babylon. And uh, there was the 70-year captivity in Babylon. So God's people were taken, carted away to Babylon for a 70-year period. So you've got generations of people who've been away from the Holy Land been, and been away from then the teaching of the Old Testament and having access to the Old Testament. So this consonant writing, consonant-only writing, only works if you're regularly seeing it and regularly hearing it. But if you have a next generation who doesn't see it and doesn't hear it, and then you go 70 years later, we're out of captivity and we go back, and that happened. Book of Nehemiah, Book of Ezra, that's what those books are about. God's people returning to the Holy Land, but they've had this 70-year hiatus. And Ezra is now having to reteach people the Old Testament. And they don't, when they look at those, when they look at those consonants, it's, it's nearly impossible for them to know what it's saying. And that's why the Bible tells us that Ezra had to read the Bible and then cause them, I'm quoting, cause them to understand what it said. It's a monumental task. Well, if that goes on for generations, and then let alone if it goes on for longer than that. So ultimately, a group called the Masoretes, the Masoretes, a group of scribes, decided that, you know, we should add vowels to these 
in order to preserve. But we don't want to mess with the, the letters themselves because the words are sacred. The letters are sacred. We can't move them. We can't change the word. So here's what they did to add the vowels. They didn't add letters for vowels. They had added what's called vowel pointing. Points between the letters, above the letters, and below the letters. Little tiny symbols that indicated a particular vowel sound. So when you look at this Hebrew Old Testament, you see these large letters that are just the consonants, but then below you'll see this little thing, and in between you might see a dot, and then above you'll see a little thing that looks like a little T, and that's a, that's a particular vowel sound. And they did that to add vocalization to it. All right, stay with me. So this gets interesting, at least to me, and you're going, hallelujah, I'm glad it gets interesting. <laughs> but... It gets interesting to me when a Jehovah's Witness comes to my door. Actually, whenever a Jehovah's Witness comes to my door, it's always interesting. And um, one of the things Jehovah's Witnesses make a really big deal out, out of is God's name, the name of God. Thus, Jehovah. His name is Jehovah, say they. They're quite insistent about this. And I remember when I was a kid, you know, and I grew up, my dad was a pastor, but I'm a kid. And I remember making the mistake of opening the door when I was a kid. And then, you know, what's God's name? And I said, um, God. And, you know, it's the same thing I said every week after Sunday school. My parents would say, what did you learn about? And I would say, God. <laughs> Sin. God's against it. I was I was very informative to my parents. So... I would say God, they would say no, his name's Jehovah. And I remember them being very insistent about that. Now, where did that come from? Well, it came from this whole consonant vowel pointing thing. Because the name of God, the personal name of God in the Hebrew Old Testament is four consonant letters. Y-H, in English, Y-H-W-H. Y-H, four letters, Y-H-W-H. So how did you get Jehovah out of that? Here's how. When the vowel pointing happened, what the Masoretes did was they took the vowels from not the personal name of God, but another name that would be substituted for God when they would read the Old Testament. The name of God was so holy, when they saw Y-H-W-H, they, they wouldn't pronounce it. They would read, every time they saw that, they would read the word, another word for Lord, Adonai. A-D-O-N-A-I. A-D-O-N-A-I. And they took the vowels from Adonai and they put them between the consonants Y-H-W-H, which comes out Yahovah. And in the King James Version, anglicized, that comes out as Jehovah. So, next time a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and says, what's God's name? You go Y-H-W-H or Adonai. And then see, and then see where that goes. But they have made such a deal out of this, and it's a deal that came out of that very process, the consonants and the, and the vowels. Now, because there was this Babylonian captivity, because generations were in captivity, and then came back to Palestine, and had to be retaught the Old Testament, and retaught the, the language of the Old Testament, 
A very small part of your Old Testament is written in Aramaic. Look at number two here, middle of page 32. This language takes its name from the Arameans or people of Aram. This is the land of Abraham's ancestors called Mesopotamia by the Greeks. This was the universal language of the ancient world from the 8th century B.C. till the 4th century B.C. Jews picked it up while in captivity. So 268 verses, mainly in Daniel, were written in Aramaic. Now, why Daniel, do you think? Because Daniel was in captivity. So he picks up Aramaic while he is in this Babylonian captivity. So that's the Old Testament. The New Testament is written entirely in Greek. Now, why Greek? It was the universal language of the ancient world in the days of Jesus and the apostles. How did it become universal? That's point three. The universality of Greek was a result of the conquest of Alexander the Greek in the fourth century B.C. And what Alexander did for the spread of the gospel and the spread of Christianity was give the, new, the world of the New Testament a universal language, which meant... If the New Testament is written in that universal language, now those, those books can be spread all over the then known world and people are able to read them because that's the universal language. Now that language was Greek, but it was not just Greek. It was a particular type of Greek. It was called Koine, Koine Greek, like K-O-I-N-E, Koine. We get, uh, you know, our Greek word in your New Testament. Some of you know a little bit of Greek because you know this word, koinonia. And koinonia means, it's often translated fellowship, sometimes partnership, communion. But what it means is to have in common. That's what koin, koinonia means. Koine means then common Greek. It wasn't classical Greek. That's another kind of Greek. Literature. Dramas, plays, that kind of stuff was written in classical Greek. Your New Testament was written in the common Koine Greek, common language of the common person. And as a result, the New Testament was able to be widely distributed and understood. All right, page 33. The writing of the Bible. Since the printing press was not invented until the 15th century, the books of the Bible were copied by hand for 3,000 years, primarily on papyrus and parchment. Papyrus, there are very, very few. You see there are a small number of copies of the Old Testament. New Testament exist on papyrus. Parchment is the main uh, material that we have that has preserved biblical manuscripts. This writing material is made from tanned animal skins, sheep, goats, cattle. Most of the copies of the Bible in existence today are on parchment because it's much more durable than papyrus. And then each was written with different types of pens you see there. Now, the Old Testament manuscripts. Before the Dead Sea Scrolls, you see some of the codices that were available. And then look at number two. It's not too surprising that we had no very old manuscripts, before a thousand, none before 1000 B.C. Since normal wear and tear from constant usage would hasten the normal deterioration of the common writing materials. Palestine also suffered wars, invasions, deliberate destruction of biblical manuscripts. So as an example, Jehoiakim burned the scroll dictated uh, by Jeremiah. Antiochus, or his name is uh, Epiphanes, had copies of the law destroyed. That's that desecration of the temple that I was talking about earlier. 
And another reason we had no older copies, now note this, is because Jewish rabbis disposed of worn-out manuscripts by burying them in a storage chamber. And so as a result, we didn't have very many old copies until the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1947, page 34. And you see a list there of the various scrolls that comprise the discovery. And then number three, today these seven are located in a special structure in Israel called the Shrine of the Book at the Israel Museum in Jerusalem. The most significant of those scrolls is St. Mark's Isaiah scroll, a complete scroll of Isaiah estimated to be about a thousand years older than any other known manuscript of Isaiah. And then you see in number, number four there an explanation of how this happened and the excavation happened. But notice the last sentence in number four. These have a very close agreement with the later Hebrew manuscripts. So here you've got manuscripts that are a thousand years older. And then to see that the Isaiah that we have in the Dead Sea Scrolls is in agreement with the Isaiah that the Masoretes had had produced is an amazing testimony to God's preservation of his word. The accuracy of the Old Testament text. Bottom of page 34, Jewish scribes took great pains to carefully copy the Old Testament so that errors would not creep in, so only parchment from clean animal was allowed. Each written column was to have no fewer than 48 and not more than 60 lines. Pages were to be lined first, then letters suspended from these lines. Only black ink was to be used. It was a specific recipe. No word or letter was to be written from memory. The new copy was to be revised within 30 days of completion. A scroll was to be rejected that had more than three errors on a single sheet. Every word and letter was counted. I mentioned to you those counters at the end of each of the books. Special rules governed the form of letters and the spaces between them. And then you've got the testimony of Jesus and the apostles to the accuracy, and I've already referenced that, Luke 24, but also it says, uh, see there, Matthew 23, that's that blood of Abel, blood of Zechariah. That same statement is in Luke 11:51, the one that I, the one that I gave you. And then you've got the New Testament manuscripts. Today there are, 5,700 cataloged New Testament manuscripts. Sometimes this word extant is used. There are 5,700 extant New Testament manuscripts. And scholars are careful not to say 5,700 in existence because what we mean is these are the only the 5,700 we know about. These are the ones that are, that are cataloged and, and known. But uh, there are always discoveries. But 5,700 is a ton to compare to in order to see the accuracy of of the New Testament. These manuscripts range in date from 100 A.D. to 1500. 118 are on papyrus, then the rest, vast majority are on parchment. And then these documents are very reliable. Here are authors and books from antiquity. And you see these authors and books, and you see how many copies we have that attest to the writings of these. Do you see on the right columns there numbers of copies? Eight, seven, 200, 10, 19. The New Testament, 5,700. And how accurate are these in comparing each of the 5,700 with each other? 99.9%. I mean, it's, it's absolutely, absolutely amazing. And then last page. Because these manuscripts were copied by hand... 
Errors did occasionally slip in, but these errors are one one thousandth of the Bible and they don't affect doctrine at all. But just here's an example, though, of one. In Revelation chapter 20 and verse 12, the King James Version says, And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened. But then the English Standard Standard Version says, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. New American Standard Bible, standing before the throne. New Living Translation, standing before God's throne. NIV, standing before the throne. So you've got the King James Version alone has before God, and then all the rest have before the throne. Why is that? The reason that the KJV has God instead of throne is in is that in the book of Revelation, the KJV is based on only one Greek manuscript, and it dates from the 12th century, obviously A.D. Only one manuscript in existence has the word God. All the others have the word throne. That is one of the liabilities of the otherwise very excellent translation of the King James. If you use the King James, then do that. If you're just too cheap to buy something else, we'll give you an NIV, okay? But King James is fine, except that the King James translated the New Testament from one uh, set of Greek manuscripts and did not have available to it at the time in the 17th century, the 1600s, the manuscripts that have been found since that time. One of the reasons that we use the New International Version or the New American Standard or the English Standard Version, all of those are based on these newer manuscripts that that have been found. But even so, the differences are very minute. You see the last point there. The differences between manuscripts that remain today are generally very minor and in no case affect doctrine. And all of these differences affect one one one-thousandth of the Bible. God has given us his word and he has taken pains to preserve his word. Now, since God has given us his word and taken pains to preserve it, what duty does that make incumbent upon us? It would seem that God wants us to have this message. It would appear that God wants us to know this message, read this message, interpret it accurately, and then make application of it to our lives. So for us to have this information now, eight weeks worth of why you can trust the Bible, and then to walk away and to fail to adhere to what the Bible says is to say to God, in effect, I don't need what you say. And so if there are any of you here who came to this series saying, okay, I want to know why I should trust the Bible, we've given you ample reason, ample reason to trust the Bible. The Bible is God's word to you. And now God calls on you to obey his word. God calls on you and, God, and, and choose my word carefully. God doesn't just invite you. Hear me, friend. I say as kindly as I can, God commands you to obey his word. Almighty God says, obey what I say. So that means you've got to know what it is, and you've got to do what it says. So, I know of a good Bible-believing church. And you should go there. And if you don't like this one, then I'll, I know of other ones. But you've got to go to a Bible-believing place where you can learn God's Word, you can learn how to read God's Word, you can learn how to study God's Word, and then you can learn how to live God's Word. Let's commit to doing that now that we know why we can trust the Bible. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you profoundly for deigning to care about us. As we saw in our first hour today, you are so powerful, you are so mighty, you are so great. And your universe is so vast that it reflects how great you are. 
And Lord, it does raise the question, why would you look upon me? Why would you look upon us? Why would you care? But Lord, you have your purpose to bring glory to yourself in your universe and in particular through your creatures on earth made in your image. And you are bringing glory to yourself through all of the means that take place in your world. Everything that happens is redounding to the glory of God. And so, Lord, thank you for teaching us that. And thank you for giving us then a conscious part of that, a conscious part of that. Everyone works for God. But, Lord, we have been given the privilege of being, of give, being given your revelation, telling us what you are doing in your world and why you are doing it. And so we consciously then and intentionally and voluntarily participate in bringing glory to you. Thank you, Lord, that you allow us to partner with you in the work that you're accomplishing in your world. You do not need any of us, but you let us do this. And so, Lord, help those of us who know that and who have been enlightened to that and believe that to cherish and praise you for that. And I pray for any here who have not committed themselves to you through the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray, Lord, that they will understand that they have no excuse for not trusting the Bible. I pray that you would convict their heart so that they would understand that the almighty God who has made this world and has made them is the one to whom they will give an account. And we will give an account based upon what you have told us, what you have revealed to us, what you have revealed to us in the external creation and then what you have revealed to us in the revelation of your word. So Lord, help us to obey. Holy Spirit, convict the hearts of those who need to come to you Go with us then this week. I pray that some might come to you even this week as they ponder and meditate upon what they've been taught from your word in this series and on this day. And I pray that those of us who know you will be conscious, conscious this afternoon and this week that we are ambassadors for Christ, that we represent you. Help us to do so in a way that is befitting our God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.